Good morning. Well, uh, for those that don't know, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship, and it is my honor and privilege to bring you God's word this morning. As we shared at our last members meeting, uh, there's going to be some, we've had a bit of transition uh, where uh, I'm going to, for a short period of time, handle uh, the youth ministry while we look towards the future as far as staffing goes. Is that uh, a new outside hire? Is that going to be part of the new position that, that we're looking to hire? So in the interim, I get the joy of being with, with uh, the middle school and high school. I also get the joy of now uh, correcting something Jennifer Mon just said. Tonight is not a cook-off. Don't send your kids hungry. It is not a cook-off. It's kick-off. <laughs> kick-off. And so tonight, we will begin. High schoolers are more than welcome, but we are you know, definitely focused on, on the middle school. We are looking uh, to have more opportunities for our high school students uh, throughout this year. And so please stay tuned. We'll be reaching out to all of you, trying to figure out what works best for people's schedule and for the needs uh, of our youth. As well as since I'm up here, I get to plug things. So I'm going to plug something else then as far as youth goes. On Friday is our first Friday night hangout. And so uh, you'll see it in the bulletin there. We're going to do a progressive dinner. We're going to start off at the Brera's house. There we're going to have some appetizers, play some games. Then we're going to head over to my house. And from there we're going to uh, have a main meal as well as some more games. And then finally we're going to end up at the Earl's house where we can have s'mores for dessert and a bonfire uh, for the evening. So a lot of it's just trying to kick off our Friday night hangout, something a bit more relational uh, as we're kind of gearing up towards the new school year. You can sign up uh, through the Church Center app um, is, is the best way to register so we know how much food and s'mores and marshmallows to get. That would help us. Well, if you turn with me now, if you look to Acts Chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Acts chapter 11, 19 to 26. Um, we're going to be continuing our series through Acts, and this morning we're going to be looking at the church in Antioch. Acts 11, 19 to 26. As I was studying and looking at, at the passages this week, I was struck with this notion of, of the heroes of the faith, the stalwarts of the faith, the people that we kind of look towards uh, with a lot of credibility and reliability, right? Individuals like, like a John Calvin or a John Owen. And um, when we read Luther's works before, he kind of went a little bit crazy against uh, certain people groups, we'll just say. But we have these heroes of the faith, right? And not just like old dead people that we read, but we have them even today, right? I credit a lot of just uh, part of my, my own spiritual journey to, to being able to read the works of a John Piper, right? To be able to read the writings of the founder's ministry, uh, to be able to kind of read others, uh, my, my, you know, quote unquote contemporaries around me and kind of hearing their sermons, and if you've been part of a charismatic church or grew up in the charismatic church, you also know for some people, they look towards these big signs and big wonders as credibility and validity to the hand of God upon their lives. I mean, that's what happened when Michelle and I were part of a charismatic church. It just felt like everything was about, are you speaking in tongues? Are you having visions? Are you falling over backwards? Is gold falling from the ceiling? And maybe somehow your gold teeth showed up. I don't know. But these were things that were like, were talked about. It must be a big sign and wonder. And that's the hand of God upon that church. Or if it just drew a large crowd. If they had a, a large building 
with lots of people in the seats. It must be the hand of God working in their lives. And we often focus on platforms, don't we? We often focus on someone's uh, social media platform, maybe their authorship platform, their conference speakership platform. And we focus on them and say, because they have this, they must be being used by God in so much more mighty way than myself. And I'm not, I don't want to diminish how God has used those individuals. I mean, I praise God there's individuals in that category that I have benefited from as a, as a young believer. But when we focus on them, I think one of the, the downsides of our social media age, of our Instagram and our Twitter and our Facebook, has been we're always looking who has the most likes and retweets. Who's the one that has the most posts? Who's the one that's not getting ratioed? Who's the one that, that their content is being spread far and wide? It must be that person with the social media platform has something to say and I should probably listen to it because everybody else is vouching for them. And because of this phenomenon when it comes to social media, we then have brought that into the church where we forget about those serving faithfully, trudging along in ministry. And not only for those in ministry, but trudging along in everyday discipleship, in everyday what it means to follow Christ. We have put others on a platform and neglected that there's those around us, these quote-unquote unsung heroes, these normal believers that live their day, they live their lives day in and day out, grinding out their faith. Reading, praying, struggling, doubting, rejoicing, day in and day out. You know, I think of, of these individuals, these unsung heroes that, that have stepped into my life to help disciple me. You know, I've been a believer for about 25 years now. You know, I, I, I came to the Lord when I was 15, right over there at Christ Community Church. I just so happened to go into their youth ministry. And Jeff Vanderstelt, the youth pastor at the time, just embraced me. He cared for me. He welcomed me. He loved me. He knew about my, he would meet with me and we would talk over coffee or over a meal. And, and I would share just about what was going on in my life and the brokenness in my home. And I would, I would talk about my doubts and my struggles and my sins and my frustrations, my anger, my animosity, my pride, my arrogance. And he would sit there and love me and care for me and walk alongside me. You know, he would encourage me to meet with another group of guys that because I was going to Marmion Academy in Aurora, he, they, they were in Batavia. And I would meet with these guys and have discipleship with these other brothers. I think of when I lived in Uganda for two years and I got to sit there and be mentored by, by Micah Rothomio. And, and Pastor Micah there doesn't have this big podcast, this big platform, this big church, but he faithfully proclaims the gospel week in and week out in a country and in a city that sits there and tries to focus on health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And he says, no, the word of God is what I will proclaim. I will proclaim the gospel. And he would sit there and I would watch him pour over just his spiral notebook, his Bible, and a concordance, because that's all he had. And he would faithfully proclaim the gospel to these college students. I think of when I lived in, in Canada, I lived there for about 10 years where I met my wife. These individuals would come alongside and they would care for me. 
They would love me. These pastors would embrace me and they would walk alongside. Some taught me good things. Others taught me some pretty bad things. But I would sit there and I would learn what transparency looked like, what leadership looks like, what preaching looks like. I think of Pastor Leland Bata that taught me about the supremacy of Christ in all things, to glorify God in all aspects of our life, that we are striving and streaking. That is our purpose, to glorify him in all things. I think of Dave DeYoung that, that taught me what quiet and humble servant leadership looks like in a world where everyone is bombastic and loud and trying to get their name out there. I watched Dave just lovingly, gently care for students and for adults in just a meek way, gentle way, the most loving and powerful way I've ever seen. But not just in ministry did I have this, this benefit. I had other men. I had men that would come into my life that would say, you, you are without a father here. You don't have your family here. We are your family. And they would meet with me and they would talk to me and they would critique me and they would encourage me. Especially as I started dating Michelle, they would, they would protect me and ask me questions, the hard, awkward questions. You know how hard and awkward it is standing at, like sitting at a table with a 60-year-old guy that's saying, how pure you being, Jimmy? Like you're just sitting in Starbucks with your head down. I can't even look this man in the eye sort of a thing. Hoping no one around is going to listen in our conversation. But he lovingly cared for me in that way to ask these questions. You see, I firmly believe this, that without these people in my life, there is no Jimmy now. I would not be standing before you now. I would not be, and that's not to say God wouldn't have done some other things. I'm saying God used them and the impact of them has made such a huge difference that I've dedicated my life to proclaiming his gospel. Without them, there is no me. And as we're looking at this church in Antioch, we see this new work happening. We see this church happening. We see Barnabas coming in, assessing what's going on. And he himself looking and saying, there is something powerful happening here. And he invites others to be a part of it. And in our text this morning, we'll see every Christian is called to the work of discipleship. Every single one. Not just the professionals, not just those in seminary, not just those that have been going at it for 10 plus years. Every single Christian has the calling and responsibility and bears the weight of discipleship. And we're going to be seeing that in our text this morning. Turn with me, Acts 11, 19 to 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray for our time right now as we look to your word. 
I pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would be renewing our mind, changing our hearts, that we would be looking to you, Father, in all things, that you would be encouraging us, that you'd be edifying us, that you'd be challenging us, and that we would come away with a, with a stronger understanding and desire for discipleship in our lives. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Every Christian is called to the work of discipleship without fail. Now, when we talk about discipleship, it's not as, I mean, there's a simple definition, right? A disciple is someone who follows another. They follow the teachings and, and the ways of another individual. But when we talk about discipleship, there's a bit more to it. It's a bit more nuanced. I mean, are we talking about discipleship when it comes to making disciples? I mean, when, when you proclaim the gospel, right, and you proclaim the gospel to all, and the Holy Spirit works in their lives, and they confess and they repent, they become a disciple. That's discipleship. Or how about the lifelong process of sanctification, right? The lifelong process of walking with Jesus, being encouraged by his word, being edified by his word. And then looking to edify others, right? As you're teaching others, proclaiming it to others who are already believers, where you're challenging your brothers and sisters to, to live lives worthy of your calling, right? Well, that's discipleship too, because you're growing disciples. But then there's the third aspect of it that, that it's the sanctification for yourself, that you yourself are growing and being discipled, that you yourself are, are maturing, that you yourself are studying, praying, being a part of the, the corporate assembly and in fellowship. Well, that's called being a disciple. So when we say discipleship, we're talking about these three things, right? We're talking about, we're talking about making disciples. We're talking about growing disciples. And we're talking about being a disciple, which coincidentally is the three points that we're going to have as we walk through this morning. As we look through this, when we talk about every Christian is called to the work of discipleship, we're going to look at this in three ways. First, making disciples. Second, growing disciples. Third, being a disciple. So here we see in our, uh, uh, in our passage, we got now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Right? Remember, Jesus gave them a mission. He said, go. Go and proclaim the word. Go and proclaim the gospel. Go forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so he uses persecution to send out his people to accomplish that mission. He scatters them, them about. And so they go, and they shouldn't have been shocked by this. They shouldn't have been surprised by it. Jesus promised them. Jesus promised them and told them, listen, you will be persecuted. You will be oppressed. People will come against you because of you following me because you follow my ways, because you listen to my voice. And so then now we have that these, these sent out, really, these scattered believers are now in Antioch. And this Gentile community, and it's growing, it's exploding among these Greeks. It's exploding. And so you think of, when you think of the center hub of Christianity at the time, you think of Jerusalem. You know, that's where the apostles were. That's where they were stationed. Everything kind of started there. But there was a second hub that grows, and that's in Antioch. This is where the Gentile church really becomes the hub and center of a lot of the missionary journeys going out to the Gentile world. And so you've got Jerusalem at the center, but you've also now, you're seeing the beginning of Antioch, the church in Antioch being established, and it begins to become a hub as well. 
You see, it's this expansion of our mission, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And what's funny is, here is where they're first called Christians, right? Here's where they're first called Christians, not Jerusalem, but in Antioch. You know, this is the first time out of three in the entire New Testament where that word's used, Christians. And it's usually because somebody else is describing the group. So here in Antioch, the non-believers, the Gentiles, those who do not have faith are seeing these believers. They're seeing these Christ followers. They're saying, those are the Christians. There's something different about them. There's something unique about them. They are following the way. They're being discipled. They're called Christians. And we continue that mission. We see it in Matthew 28. We're called to go. Other translations say, as you go. This sense of like, as you are living your life, your day-to-day life, as you go, proclaim the gospel. As you go about your day, as you engage in the community, as you engage in the workplace, as you go, proclaim the gospel to everyone, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You proclaim it indiscriminately, not withholding the gospel to anyone. You just proclaim it so that there would be some that would become new converts like we see at Antioch. And like in Antioch, they grow into this community and establish this church because this gospel, this message of the church is being proclaimed, the good news that we have in Jesus Christ, that your grace is enough. And they teach them the practice of the church, the sanctification that they're called to study God's word. Look at Acts 2.42. If you'll turn with me, Acts 2.42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right? Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. So here they are. This is what the church is supposed to be doing, right? Studying God's word, corporate worship, prayer, fellowship. So we encourage people, reach out to them, we proclaim the gospel so that they can begin that part of the sanctification process, that part of the discipleship process. So then after making disciples, we look to growing disciples. Number two, enter Barnabas. You know, we read back in Acts 4 that he had sold off his field, or some of his field, and he had given the proceeds, or a portion of the proceeds, to the local church to help out the needy. And it called him Barnabas, this son of encouragement. You know, Barnabas loved the church. He loves the church. He demonstrated that in how he wanted to care for others within the church. Those that were less fortunate, those that were needy, those that he called his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Barnabas was respected by, this, by the church, by, respected by the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because previously they only sent out apostles to go investigate things. They would send out apostles to go figure out what is this work that's happening? We hear about this work happening. What is, what is going on? They would send out an apostle. Peter went and found out about like, Cornelius and seeing what's going on there. We got Philip and the eunuch. We got these apostles that are being sent out. And here now we see Barnabas. They respected Barnabas to say, brother, Go. It also may be a part just more strategic, right? Barnabas coming from uh, uh, where he had, he had this uh, Greek-speaking background. And so he could serve as this intermediary between the church of Jerusalem and the church of Antioch. 
He understood what was going on in Jerusalem and the ways and the, uh, what the disciples were teaching. And he was able then to talk and converse and understand what was happening in, the, for, uh, in those who were at Antioch. Called him a good man, just like they did, like Luke did. Same writer Luke did of Joseph of Arimathea. Called him full of the Holy Spirit and faith, just the same as they described Stephen before he was stoned. And so they sent Barnabas to investigate the church in Antioch. And he goes and he hears what's going on. He rejoices with them. He is glad. He's not jealous. He's not envious. He doesn't say, well, hold on. None of us came and taught you this. The apostles, hey, how could you start a church here without an apostle? No. He rejoices and is glad that the work of God is happening among the people in Antioch. And so he encourages the church in Antioch. He encourages them so much that he sees there is a work happening here. It's time to get on board. We're Saul. I mean, think about this about Barnabas. Barnabas is the one that vouched for Saul. Barnabas is the one that vouched for Saul in Jerusalem. Well, they said, we can't, we're wary of him. We can't trust him. He's going to turn his back on us. He tried to kill all of us. And Barnabas is the one saying, no, I have seen what God is doing. God has done something in his life. He has changed. He was lost and now he is found. He was an enemy of God, but now he's a lover of God. He was an enemy of the church and now he is part of the church. He sought to destroy us and now he embraces us. And so it says, Barnabas went to look for Paul. Now, it's not that he just went and sent for him. It actually says to look for Saul. There was some intentionality there. He had to find him in Tarsus. Now, in Galatians 1 and 2, we kind of get this timeline that from the time of when uh, uh, Paul was sent to Tarsus till now, or from his conversion till now, is about 10 years. 10 years. And so Barnabas goes and he seeks after him and he brings him because he saw something and believed in something in the work of God in his life. And together they discipled the church in Antioch. I just love that about Barnabas. I love that about Barnabas, this, this unsung hero, this guy that wasn't necessarily up front. Here we have this glimpse of, of an everyday believer trudging along, but having faith in God and knowing and trusting God that you are at work, Lord. I'm, I'm going to jump in to this work of discipleship. And he goes and grabs Paul, and together they disciple the church in Antioch. Nothing against Peter. He witnessed to Cornelius and left. Oftentimes, that's sort of what we do. We just kind of witness and leave. I mean, now I got a pet peeve. I got pet peeves against like short-term mission trips and things like that. They're all good. There's, you know, there's, there's lots, of, lots of benefit to it. I'm not going to say it's not good because it is. It's really good. But I love the idea of partnering with, a local, partnering with a local church. Because as you're reaching out, as people are coming to the Lord, I want to know that they're being discipled afterwards. There are some people that are called to just the work of evangelism. And praise God for evangelists that we have in the church today. Praise God for evangelists that we've had had in the church. But the vast majority of believers are called to discipleship. They, they, they evangelize, but they're called to the everyday work of discipleship. And so here is Barnabas getting Saul and saying, we got some work to do. And they spent the year teaching. Barnabas knew God was at work and jumped in.
Now, the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689, chapter 26, is uh, about the church. And paragraph 5 says this. In the execution of this power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father. So let's stop right there. The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world. He redeems out of the world the people to himself by his word. As the word of God, the gospel of God is being proclaimed out to the world. As you are proclaiming the gospel, the spirit is at work in their life. The spirit is at work convicting them that they may confess and repent, right? That they may be redeemed. So ministry of his word by his spirit. Those that are given unto him by his father, just like, we, like Jesus talked about, those that are given to me. He will never leave them or they will never be gone. That they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience. So it's not just we called into this country club called Christianity. We're not just all part of this association called the church. We're part of it. We're in it. But it's for what? That we may walk before him in all the ways of obedience. That we may obey our God in all things. That we would be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Which he prescribeth to them in his word. Where do we find that? In the word. By what standard? Right here. As we study God's word. We are learning what it means to obey God. What, is, what does it mean to be living in active obedience to God? And so that's why we're all called to discipleship. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 say this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me, or works within me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our call too when it comes to discipling others, when it comes to growing disciples. That's why these ministries that we have are important. That's why we see that we want, we see the value as a leadership within our middle school and our high school ministries. We see the value within our children's ministry because this is an active way of discipleship that we are having here as a corporate body. That's why we see the value when it comes to uh, community groups and discipleship groups, when it comes to men's ministry and women's ministry. These are opportunities for discipleship, for you to help grow disciples. Because God has uniquely gifted you, you, in the work of discipleship, in the work of discipling. It's for all of us, not just professionals. And we often try to make excuses. We say, I don't have time I don't have time to do the work of discipling. I don't have the strength. I don't have, I don't have the skill to do it. No one's ever taught me. No one's ever shown me. I don't know where to start. No one's given me an opportunity. We often try to find excuses. But listen, God has given all of us opportunities and continues to give all of us opportunities. Just like Barnabas, we need to see the opportunity and grab it. He's given us opportunities at the home. For those of us as parents, Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7 talks about as parents, we are to train our children up in the ways of God. We are to train them up. We are to disciple them. We are to teach them the word of God. We are to teach them how to pray. 
We are to teach them how to study for themselves. And you know what? Specifically men, in Ephesians 6, 4, you bear the responsibility of making sure this happens. You bear that responsibility as the head of the family. The discipleship needs to be happening and it's under your watch. You're looking to be presenting your family. You're looking to make sure your kids are growing and being discipled. That you're walking alongside your spouse. Now, don't hear me say some complimentarian John MacArthur, Doug Wilson sort of a thing here, right? Or some John Piper, women can't even be cops sort of a thing. That's not what I'm saying. Because when we're called as men to lead in our home, to be the main disciples in our home, that means we're also modeling sacrificial love for our spouse and for our family. We're modeling what it means to give of ourselves to them. We're modeling what it means to, to lay aside our pride and our arrogance, to be laying aside some of our wishes and our desires. But what does it mean to give of ourselves to our family? We are to model this sacrificial love and we are to lead the way in following Christ. We are to be modeling that for our children and for our families. Here is what it means to be a Christ follower. Here is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here is what it means to give your life to him. Our children see it. I'll tell you this, from my time and, and being in leadership, whether it's been here or other churches, I will say I've, I, I see a difference in children. I see a difference in children as they grow when they have things modeled at home. And men, the number one, number one desire I hear from spouses is I want him to lead us more. I want him to lead in this way more. I want him to be the spiritual head of the household. I want him to engage in that and embrace in that more. So not just you've got the opportunity at home, but at the church. Titus 2.4 says, older women train younger. Older women train younger. Take that opportunity. Take that opportunity to come alongside younger women. As a younger woman, take that opportunity to come alongside an older woman. There's so much wisdom there. And it's not just for women here, just because it says it there. But I'm thinking even as men, as men, the importance of what it means to, to, be, to be discipled by other men, by older men. You know, like I said, I've got lots of experience with, with men speaking into my lives. And I'm thinking of one in particular that, that uh, was Michelle's godfather. Her godparents took me in when I moved to Canada. They gave me a room. They fed me. They took care of me. They allowed me to, to live lives. with. They treated me like I was their own son. And Fred, Fred would just sit there and we'd, we'd cook dinner together. We'd clean together. We'd laugh together. We'd joke around and play jokes on Glenda, which she just hated. We would just do these things together just to, just to have fun. We would go golfing together and, and, and we would just have a great time. But I always knew... I always knew there was a, a talk coming when we, we'd go somewhere. It's almost like, like if you know your dog's going to die and like, you're like, you know what? Let's take him out for the country, do a nice little ride along, give him his favorite treat. I felt like that. Fred's like, hey man, let's go like get some wings and then we'll go and hit some golf balls. Uh, wouldn't that be fun? I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. And halfway through, I'm like, oh no, I'm going to get a talk. 
I'm going to get a talk from Fred. And sure enough, Fred would have noticed a sin in my life, an arrogance or a pride in my life. And he'd say, hey, man, like at that meeting, you kind of, yeah, you got angry. Why? And he would talk to me. This man spent, he taught me. So here's the thing. I love my father. My father is a great man. Absolutely, I love my father. He has taught me. He has loved me. He has cared for me. He has taught me what hard work looks like, what dedication looks like, what it means to give everything of yourself for your family. My father has done all that. And I am, I am thankful for the example that I have in him. But my father would admit, my father would admit, and he has said, I have not really shown you what it means to be a sacrificial, loving husband. I have struggled in this way, son. I have never been able to do that. And I remember the time he came up to Canada to sit down. He sat down with Fred and myself and he looked Fred in the eye and said, I'm so, I praise God that he has brought you into my son's life to be the father I never was and to care for him in my absence. And Fred's taking that seriously. He calls me every two, three weeks just to say, hey, how are things going? How's Michelle? How are the kids? And even, even when I was there, he would see things in my marriage and he'd pull me to the side, he'd take me out back and whip me up a bit. And I'm thankful for that. It means a lot as a young man to have an older man invest that sort of loving care for you. I'll never forget it. We're called in the church in 1 Peter 4.10 to use your gifts in the church for the mutual edification. Each and every single one of you has unique set of skills to be bringing in. You know, oftentimes people think, what can I offer? I can't offer much. Well, listen, get in there and we're going to figure it out because I know God has gifted you in a way. Whether that's serving, whether that's teaching, whether that's discipling, there is something that the God has uniquely gifted you. Maybe it's counseling. Maybe it's just meeting for coffee and just listening, being a listening ear. All that is part of it. Use your gift. And we're called to exhort one another in Hebrews 3.13. Each and every single one of us. See something, say something. But we're also called to be discipling in ministry, right? Paul trained Timothy. Barnabas trained Paul, right? And we are called to that. Listen, we have, I am... I, I, okay, maybe, okay. One of the things I learned right away coming to Redeemer was there's a lot of honesty and transparency that happens here. There's, a, there's an authenticity here that it's not really found in a lot of churches, at least my experience has been, right? But the second thing is we have a deep bench of young men that are clearly gifted. That's our job as a leadership to be cultivating that. To be cultivating these young men as they seek the call that maybe God has for them, right? That's our responsibility as leadership. But as a church, as we recognize that, we want to be coming alongside them individually. Saying, brother, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so encouraged by you. I see, the, I see the work of God in your life. I've seen you even grow. I've seen you grow in your maturity over the last couple of years. You know, I said that to, to one of these brothers just recently. I said, man, when I first met you, I would see just how, how, how flaky you were. I could see like this raw gifting, but man, now I'm starting to see you come into your own and I'm really, really proud of you. I'm just really proud of you for that. Like we want to be coming along others. And we want to be embracing the means of grace personally, right? Through prayer, word, worship, and fellowship. But you know, 
it's easy to make disciples and grow disciples. I know that doesn't sound right. I know it sounds like, what do you mean? That's hard work because I'm hardly doing it now. I hear you. It's a struggle. It's not as easy as I'm saying. But compared to number three, being a disciple, oh, that's hard. Being a disciple is difficult. And it's difficult for a number of reasons. But one is because sometimes we're just too afraid to ask for that discipleship in our lives. It's, we're just too afraid to ask. Maybe we're too embarrassed. I don't know if we're just too embarrassed thinking that someone's going to laugh at us. Like, I, I could never fathom a moment where if I went to another brother and said, hey, I'd love for you to speak into my life, that they would sit there, point their finger at me, and laugh in my face. I can't imagine any of you doing that. But somehow we think to ourselves, ah, they're going to think any, maybe, are they going to judge me or think less of me? Are they going to think I, 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 I should be further along than, than I am? Sometimes we're too afraid to ask, but we, we should ask. Sometimes we just don't know where to start. And that's part of the, the, the responsibility of the church, of the leadership of the church, to be having these opportunities for onboarding and on-ramping when it comes to, quote-unquote, formal opportunities of discipleship. Some people are just too arrogant. They don't need discipleship. I mean, that to me, I, I can understand it. I've been, I, I could be a very arrogant and prideful person myself. I remember, not in this church, previous church, two preachers, but I remember, I remember talking with one of the deacons and asking, hey, brother, what are you reading? What are you reading? I, I want to you know, be encouraged. What, what are you reading? It's like, ah, I don't really read anymore. I kind of got the gist and the themes. And I was like, ah, I feel like you're missing quite a big theme here. You know, I think you need to, you need to crack that thing open. But for some people, there was like this sense of, I don't need this. I've grown up. Or, I've grown up in the church. I've been in it long enough. At this point in my life, do I really need discipleship? Am I, I feel like I've arrived. Haven't I? Isn't after 10 years I've got it? No. Some of us have been burned in the past. And listen, if you're one of them, so am I. I have been burned in discipleship twice by two pastors. And it just felt, it felt horrible. It felt horrible. I couldn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I cried. I told Michelle, I'm never doing this again. Forget that. Why would I ever open myself up? Because listen, discipleship is messy. Real, intense discipleship is messy. It takes risk. It takes risk to, to be completely transparent, to be talking to somebody and to be sharing, here are, my, here are my struggles, here are my sins, here are my frustrations, here are my doubts. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's how I've, how I've messed up. It's, it's hard. And then to have them throw it back in your face at some point or to divulge it to others or to bring it up in front of other people or to use it to kind of invalidate just because you called into question maybe some sin in their life or something that needs some correction. That's hard. I get it. I get it. It's difficult. But I want you to know, getting past that and engaging in true, authentic discipleship. It's, it's just beautiful. Some just don't see the value in it at all. I come on Sundays, I'm good to go. Some just don't see the value. To wrap us up, I want to give you 10 
10 reasons, 10 values of discipleship. I have scoured the internet and looked at some things that I know that have been important in my life, right? Number one, one val- the first value of discipleship, to grow in your knowledge, love, and faith in the person and work of Jesus. To grow in your knowledge, love, and faith in the person and work of Jesus. That should be a huge, that should be a ding, ding, ding value right there. How is it that one could call themselves a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, without getting to know Jesus? How could you say you love him, care for him, follow him, and yet you don't know him? It'd be like me saying, Michelle and I are married, and I love her, and I adore her, but I don't spend time with her. I don't spend time getting to know her. I don't ask her what's going on in her day. I don't tell her that she's pretty, or I don't check in with her throughout to say, hey, honey, how's life going for you right now? I've got a break. I want to see how are things happening. How could I say that I love my wife if I'm not willing to be invested in the relationship with my wife? No marriage could last in that way. No marriage, unless it's just a politically driven marriage for appearances sake, which those happen. But within the church, we are called to so much more than that, aren't we? We are called to know our spouses and to know our spouses. How could one say they are a Christ follower without engaging, without engaging in the work of discipleship? It doesn't make sense to me. On this side, before it did, when I didn't want transparency and accountability, when I didn't want to be confronted with my sin and my shame, when I didn't want to read scripture to where it would point out that I'm disobeying God in this practice or thought. Grow in your knowledge, love, and faith in the person and work of Jesus. Number two, discipleship strengthens your relationship with others. You grow in relationship with your other brothers and sisters in Christ that you are in discipleship with. You know, we've been very fortunate here to be able to have very strong connections in our, disciples, in our uh, uh, community groups and our discipleship groups. You know, for Michelle and I, we have, we have a group of individuals that, that we talk with, we text with, we joke with, we pray with, we, we uh, mourn with. We confront each other. You know, I... I've had times where I've had to say to one of my brothers, something just ain't right here. I don't like how to, kind of how that went off, man. Let's check your heart. Check mine. Check mine, please. But we want to strengthen your relationships with others. We want to grow as, as God's people together with each other. It strengthens your relationships with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, it develops maturity. Discipleship develops maturity. And you know, I mean, I think of what, what the writer said, uh, I think it was in Hebrews where he talks about, talks about, hey, I wanted to give you solid food, but now I got to give you milk. You can't handle the solid food. So for now you get milk. Listen, in the universal church, there are plenty of individuals that are still living off milk and they can't take that meat. And part of discipleship is encouraging and maturing our fellow disciples as they grow so that they may be presented mature in Christ. Number four, discipleship models your faith to your kids. Your kids are watching. Your kids see how you are interacting with the world. They see how you are interacting 
as a couple, they see how you are interacting with the church. They see how you're interacting in, in, in your study of the word or lack thereof. Or in the means of grace, they see it. Discipleship helps mold and or it models for your children. This is what a Christ follower looks like. You know, one of the things with the pandemic that happened is it, it really embraced and fed into our, our, our isolation, our individual mentality, where we would think to ourselves, I don't need anybody else but Jesus and my Bible. That's all. I don't need the church. I don't need to show up. I don't need to be a part of the group. I don't need to be a part of any Bible studies or any CGs. I don't need to be a part of any discipleship groups. Listen, I'll, I'll worship from a distance, and I'll do this on my own. And we began, for some, are continuing to teach their kids that they don't need the local church that they don't need the church that Jesus died for, the bride of Christ that he has given himself for, the only institution that will leave this, this life and move on to the next. The importance of, this lo of the local church, the bride of Christ, and yet we play with it flippantly like it's nothing. We model for our children our faith, and discipleship shows them how important it is to be a Christ follower. Number five, renewing of your mind, affections, and practice. As you are being discipled, as you're growing, it's inevitable that as you're reading God's word, as you're being edified by your brothers and sisters, that there is a renewing of your mind, that your heart is going to change, and that from that your practices will change. How you conduct yourself will change. Not just practice. A lot of people could fake it. A lot of people try to fake it till they make it. But what we want is real heart change. Number six, learn sound doctrine. That's another benefit or value of discipleship. You learn sound doctrine so that you are not pulled to and fro by every wind of change of teaching. You know what's real and what's not. Number seven, accountability. That's a value of discipleship. Some hate it, but that's a value where we can hold each other accountable, challenge each other, and encourage one another to reject their sin and embrace Christ. And speaking of embracing, number eight, in, uh, a value of discipleship is embracing your identity and your purpose, right? You're embracing your identity in Christ as a Christ follower, as a child of God, as, a, a, as one people of God, as an ambassador of God, you're embracing your purpose, that you're called to glorify God in all things, in every way. Number nine, another value is mutual edification. You both are, as iron sharpens iron, being able to encourage each other, challenge each other. Because listen, we're all messed up. The church is a hospital full of Sick people needing healing. You know, I hear from some people, I can't go to church. I'll, I'll be a hypocrite. I'm like, well, join me. Trust me, I know everybody else there too. And finally, number 10, endure to the end. We get to encourage each other as we, as we run this race. You know, I went to Marmion, as I mentioned, and, and they always talk about the Marmion difference. I never understood that until after I was out. And I figured out what it was is that we just survived. We survived. 
You know, we started off at 160, 170 kids and graduated with like 60, 70. And it was like this sense of like, we made it. We took the yelling, we took the screaming, we took the beatings, we took the swords and sabers being whipped at us with, by upperclassmen. Like we did the late nights, we did the long weekends. We did it. And we still talk about a lot of the things, but there was that shared experience that we endured together. And as the body of Christ, as God's people, we endure together. We share this experience of a world that pushes up against us. A world that is hostile to us. A world that looks to persecute us and oppress us. A world that doesn't understand our values and our priorities. A world that can't fathom why we don't go with the way they want us to go. That we won't live by their standard. That we won't live by their ways. That we won't, we won't succumb. Obeying, we'd rather obey Christ than obey them. We'd rather, be, uh, we'd rather identify with Christ than identify with them. And we do that together as one. We endure to the end. Listen, brothers and sisters, discipleship can happen in two ways. There's formal ways, as we've been discussing. Community groups, discipleship groups, men and women's ministry, youth group, children's ministry. As we gather together here corporately, I encourage you, if you're not involved... If you can be involved and you're not, get involved. This is where discipleship happens. Not just growing disciples because you're able to help other people, but by being discipled. Because you need that too. I don't think I can look anybody in the eye here and someone would tell me straight up, I don't need to be discipled. But there's also informal ways. There's going out and having a coffee with someone. There's going out for dinner with others. There's building relationships outside of these formal activities where you can just engage with one another as, as brothers and sisters and check in. You know, I've got an opportunity where I informally meet with, with uh, a few guys just because we all work around each other and we just bring our lunches. We bring our lunches, we sit together and we just talk and eat and then all head back to work. And that's an informal way of, of growing as disciples together as iron sharpens iron. Look for ways to be involved in discipleship because each and every single one of you is called to this work of discipleship. You're called to make disciples, to grow disciples, and to be discipled. And I pray that together we can all edify one another so that we may, mature, we may present each other mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the opportunity uh, to be discipled. I thank you for the opportunity that you've given some of us to, to be discipling others. And I pray that, you would, that we would find other ways to plug in and get involved. Lord, I pray that, that we would just embrace the opportunities given to us. Like Barnabas, that we would embrace the opportunities to engage in the work, in your work. And in the end, we may glorify you. Pray this all in your name. Amen.